Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. This is Both Sides of the Aisle. I represent the political center and have on the political left, Shireen Gorbani. Hello. Hi, listeners. Happy holidays. And on the political right, uh, the state auditor, John Dougal. Great to be with you, too. We are going to talk about two issues on today's program. We want to talk about free speech, and we want to talk about the role of government. So you're not going to censor us right now? (laughs) (laughs) We like the idea of, um, over the holidays, uh, being a little bit more philosophical on the program. And, you know, there has been a lot of news about uh, what's going on at our college campuses and the recent action of our Utah system of higher education and the Utah governor and legislative leadership to... um, basically ask our, what will require. Require, yes. Yeah, the leaders of our university to be silent on social issues. Yeah. Yeah, quick reactions from both of you. Oh, okay. Here it it's comes. not good. Um, <laughs> I, I used to think that colleges and universities were places where we could deeply engage and have these meaningful conversations that help expand how we think about the world and challenge our understanding of it. And I worry about commentary like this, um, what feels like restrictions like this, because we have, I'm forgetting it now, but like, isn't the, there's like this amazing quote from Dante, right? Like the hottest place in hell are for those who took a position of neutrality in times of like serious moral crisis. And this kind of notion that when we have uh, our largest thinking institutions asked to really curtail their positionality on some of these big issues, I worry that it creates a broader environment that allows us to just further and further isolate and, and further and further disengage from really difficult conversations that I think we should be practicing more now than ever. So I, I think it's a concerning move. Um, I also, I, well, I think we'll kind of get into this a little bit more. But anyway, John, what's, what's your reaction to this? So I'm, I'm kind of mixed on this and, I, and partly mixed because I'm not fully sure exactly what the mandate dictates. Mm-hmm. One of the concerns I've seen in Utah and especially nationwide is certain students and certain opinions are being stifled. Whether we, you know, we, we like that speech, so we're going to encourage it and we don't like that speech. And so we're going to stifle it. And, and as a conservative, you, many students are feeling like they can't express their conservative views on their college campuses because colleges lean left. Mm -hmm. And so they're feeling like they're being stifled. People who are coming to speak to them are getting shouted down and can't speak And to your point, I thought colleges were the bastion of free speech and we let people engage in dialogue. And that is, that is how we engage is rather than going to war, we're going to engage in dialogue. And, and clearly we've hit a heightened point right now with the Israeli Hamas war and people taking positions on either side and some being favored and some being, you know, you know, shouted down or silenced as it might be. Um, And so one of the questions I have is I agree with the concept that I don't think the institution should be weighing in and putting their thumb on the scale one way or the other. Um, it sounds like we still want students to engage and we want a, more, a greater proliferation and respect for student free speech. Yeah. The question comes into what does that mean for faculty and how does faculty engage or not engage and when are they viewed as speaking for the institution versus when are they viewed as just speaking as individuals sure. and stuff. But I want more free speech on our campuses. Um, of those that are students there as well as those that are visitors there. Mm. Yeah. I obviously work at the University of Utah and so get to see this from a bit of a front row seat. And I will tell you that my understanding of the action just taken by our state absolutely, completely affirmed free speech on campuses for our students. 
that the, students, the yes. more the merrier. You know, that the bigger problem on campus is that people aren't speaking up enough. There's a lot of self-censorship because of people being worried about being canceled or different things. And so this was an affirmation of free speech, but it was also... Well, direct- I've talked to some students who feel like they can't even put yeah. certain things in a paper for fear of what their yeah. professor might do. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but, but what they essentially said is we don't want our institutions taking a position. The faculty does not represent the institution. The administration does, you know, mm-hmm. our, the president does. And so in some ways, this is really helpful news because... It um, it's it's so much work to prepare statements and come out with you know the proper language to represent a diverse student body, you know diverse perspectives. And I like um, our institutions of higher learning focusing on what they need to be doing, you know, teaching students, doing research, public service, and not being all caught up in the you know, war of words about social issues. Sure. But I guess I would say the thing about that is I I feel like, and maybe this is a luxury that I have not being in office anymore, but why do people issue statements at all? Like, please just issue action. Uh, Shereen, if you would look at the statement I issued yesterday. (laughs) Exactly. No, no, but this is a It's a very frustrating thing for me. I feel like it is, um, you know, I, I would say, even if it's a deeply held belief, it often feels like virtue signaling. I want to see, like, especially for people who, for example, I'm politically aligned with who I've elected to represent me, I want to see in action what they're doing to carry forward a core set of values that is transformational, that is anti-racist, that is, you know, working towards a more progressive and better future that the way that I envision it. And and I think many people on the left think about it. I want to see that in action. I don't need to see another tweet from you. I don't need to see, you know, I, I don't need to yeah. see this performance of politics. I want yeah. to see the action of politics. Yeah. Now, I will say, I thought it was kind of disingenuous of our governor to say, if you want to make big, these big statements, then go run for office in a deeply gerrymandered state. I'm like, that's cute, but it's not really uh, a good option for many people. I do think it's important for people to speak out, to educate themselves on issues, but to also, if we're asking, we should be asking for the action. Are there ways that we can operationalize, put into action yeah. the values that we hold? So in my interaction with my uh, president, President Taylor Randall, he's basically saying things like, hey, we got to respect all voices on this campus. Secondly, we need more voices to be shared. So let's not self-censor. Let's talk. Yeah. Uh, well, respect all voices is hard. Well, that's hard the third to, point. Because it's easy to defend speech that you like. Yeah. It is really hard to defend speech that you find detestable. Yeah, and that's the third point that he's uh, affirming is that when you speak, speak with dignity. Speak with dignity, and we can talk more about that. And then the final point is be patient while we work through the differences. Those are sort of the four, you know, keystones that I've heard from our president. It's a really incredibly uh, healthy, productive conversation, and it's helping um, our students, uh, you know, fulfill their potential. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, well, and, and I always heard the concept of, of universities is teaching students to think, not teaching them what to think. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's where, you know, I would like us to get back there because sometimes it just seems like our universities, whether in Utah or, or nationwide— seem to be driving a certain agenda. And yeah. if you don't fit with it, then, you know, so you're, we're not for you. Yeah. And, so it, the, and if it's supposed to be embracing of all students, we want all students to get an education. And, and Yeah. So it's the, there's the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote. I think I've got this right. It was the Supreme Court justice that said you have to have, you know, freedom for the thought you hate, you know, freedom yeah. for people to express the thought you hate. And this is where dignity 
comes to mind, right? Because, John, you have some different life experience that's led you to your point of view, and I have to respect you as a, your humanity, as a human being. First and foremost, I recognize your dignity, and then I disagree with your ideas. Mm-hmm. But when you recognize someone's dignity, that's the best way to start to make progress. Because when you treat people with contempt... They just fire back at you. I think that's right. I also feel like I, my, my mind's never been changed by someone yelling at me. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, shut up. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's why it just hasn't worked yet, John. <laughs> but I think that there there is a huge component of, um, you know, whether it is in political discourse or what's happening. I think at our own homes or. You know, certainly I think holiday times can be stressful for people depending on what's happening around Mm -hmm. their holiday gatherings, Um, but certainly to our workplaces, to our classrooms. When we're thinking about the way that we engage in disagreement, I actually feel like we've really backslid. We don't have as many tools um, as we need, Mm -hmm. I think, to engage meaningfully in the complex issues that we're facing. Um, Whether I just read this really interesting article in a philanthropy magazine about how uh, heads of nonprofits are not giving feedback to um, people in the organization as much as they used to for fear. Like there's mm-hmm. this fear that's driving a lack of dis- uh, a, a lack of willingness to provide sometimes what is difficult things to hear, right? Um, and so I think we're losing a lot of opportunities because we've both become afraid to engage, you know, meaningfully and maybe have lost some skills around how to do it mm-hmm. respectfully. Well, so one of the, you know, sort of touchstones of speaking with dignity is to not engage in name calling. Mm. So, John, if I say something like a MAGA Republican, that that violates the dignity index for me. Uh, the dignity index being, you know, an accounting of... Well, it, it may. And yeah. I'm going to say it may because if you mean that as a derogatory term or something like that, mm-hmm. then I think... I, just, I would agree. I would just Others say, who just view themselves that way would not necessarily view that as negative. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would just say so. Republicans that support our former president. Right. You know, uh, another but one. Some, like I said, word as a badge of pride. You know, when you uh, believe in active government because you see human suffering in this world and you think government can help, you know, do you label those people as leftist socialists? You know? <laughs> I mean, it's happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> you resemble our comment. <laughs> I resemble that but, comment. But, yeah. so, so, you know, we've been pioneering at the University of Utah, the Dignity Index. You know, anyone can look that up, but it's a scale of one to eight from uh, contempt to loving your, your enemy. And it, it allows you to reflect upon, has a mirror effect of, of what uh, your speech means in terms of your actions and your activities. And it's, it's just a really helpful way to, to change the world. You have to give something a name and you have to measure it. Well, I seem to recall a story a while back of, as I recall, it was a story of a black man and a guy that was formerly with the KKK. Mm-hmm. And I got to imagine he probably said some caustic things. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, their their friendship came about as a result of them getting to better know each other's perspectives and understanding. But, but that's a certain dynamic that if somebody comes across really caustic, mm-hmm. our natural reaction is to lash back or shut down and check out and not to give them some allowance of dignity, as, mm-hmm. as you describe, mm-hmm. recognize that they've had certain experiences that have caused them to go down that path. How do I engage in the appropriate way to discuss that mm-hmm. without I, silencing I them because care. I detest what they're saying? Yeah, I still care about them as a human being. And depending on your faith tradition as a as you know a daughter or son of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shereen, I just want to hit you up on one more question about this. In your own 
language. You're you're a communications guru in my way of thinking. <laughs> How do you censor your own speech? You know, you feel something, you have an emotion, mm. but you have to push that to a more reason decision of how you speak. And, and I think our governor, I think our congressional delegation, they can all get better at this. So I, I guess I would say a couple things come to mind for me. One, and I do think this is being a theater kid, right? Mm-hmm. Is how is this going to be heard? What is the audience? Mm-hmm. And what is... They teach you that in theater? Yeah, you have yeah. to think about when I, you know, as a comms person... Right now person, she's projecting yeah, right in, now. In a back, like with a background also in teaching comms and having master's degrees in communication. When you think about your primary audience, that for me is really the starting point. And I, like I mentioned before, I don't think people change their minds. I don't think they receive information when they're feeling stressed, when people are feeling like they're being attacked. So is there a way to really clearly, uh, through story and calmly, and also in a way that is recognizing somebody's personal experience, whether it's yours, mm-hmm. if you're trying to make a point about something that happened in your life, or to say, I know this might not resonate with your life experience, but let me tell you how I'm thinking about it or seeing yeah. it. I think that creates an opening, an opportunity mm-hmm. for opening that we so rarely um, engage in because very often, and I think more and more, we're in circles and in environments where people think the same. And so I think it's really important to always imagine that your audience does not think the same mm, as you do. Interesting. Um, or see things in the same alignment. So that's great advice. And I want to double down and have each of us give our, our listeners some advice on how to uh, improve our speech to in- increase uh, dignity mm-hmm. in our world and, and whatnot. And you've already given some, but if you want to think of another one, John, do you so, have some advice for our listeners? One of the other key things is is trying to find some common ground to work from. So, mm-hmm. you know, previous episode, we talked about homelessness. So if mm-hmm. it's just, Natalie, you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're naive or, or you're ignorant, you know, mm-hmm. you're not going to listen at all. But when it's, Natalie, Shame you on and you, I, John. Yeah, yeah. 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 When, now, you and I both want to solve homelessness. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's, let's talk through how you're seeing that. Let me talk through how I'm seeing it. Let me share my concerns. You share your concerns. But we both share that desire. Mm-hmm. We want to fix that problem. Yeah. Right. Shereen, you're part of that too. Uh, here's my advice. Turn it off. Turn off your social media. Give your brain a break from all of the mean speech. Yeah. Could you repeat that that for TikTok? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think of, uh, you know, when you're home uh, cooking dinner, uh, you know, listen to music or watch a cooking show, but don't turn on one of the news programs and just fill your brain with all of this conflict. I think it'll help you find a better place to, 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 you know, function with dignity. I'll just say one of the last things that comes to mind for me often and a question that I ask, especially when confronted by an idea that I don't like, Mm -hmm. is tell me more. Could you You tell me? You say that a lot to me, so. (laughs) Tell me more. That's great. Not because I'm constantly (laughs) disagreeing with you, Natalie, but I do. What's this? A line from the movie Grease? But it really does help go, go to that next layer to understand where somebody is coming from. And I think if we could do more of that, we would have more opportunity to move yeah. forward. This is great uh, wisdom from both sides of the aisle. I'm with John Dougal and Shireen Gorbani. In our next segment, we're going to talk about the role of government. Stay tuned, everybody. Shireen Gorbani on the left. John Dougal on the right. Natalie Gawkner in the political center. And this is both sides of the aisle. And this is a special program. We're talking about ideas. And, and we want to spend this last segment talking about the role of government. Why are we doing that, John and Shireen? Because 
the role of government is really what defines where you are in that political spectrum. Yeah. You know, from sort of individualistic kind of approach to life to more of a collective approach to life. So, John, And when it comes to collective, which aspects of collectivism do yeah. you favor? So. John, you have a, a libertarian with a small L uh, kind of um, Perspective. approach. Yeah. yeah. Tell us, uh, you know, in a nutshell, why that is. So part of the dynamic, and I can say part of that political awakening happened in summer of 2005. And, and when you were I, 10 years old, no, yeah, not quite. Now <laughs> it was, uh, I just finished, uh, my third session in the Utah house mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I was watching government failure up close and personal and, and was just watching how government gives this perception that it can solve so many problems and yet it fails time and time again. And it gives the public a false sense of security mm-hmm. that it can actually solve a problem. And then sometimes when it solves the problem, it solves the problem in the short term, but creates bigger problems down the road and on and on and on. And I came much more to the perspective of, you know what? People on many things can engage and can work things out among themselves. And so therefore my perspective came to be one, we need to decentralize most things in government. Things that are happening at the federal level need to come down to the state level. Things at the state level need to go down to the counties and the cities. And ultimately, there's lots of things that can just happen in the private sector with people cooperating with one another. And so that's kind of that's kind of where I've come from is just watching those dynamics. Shereen, give us your, you know, pitch for where you stand on the role of government. So I always talk about Paul Wellstone. <laughs> and, got the bumper sticker on the car. I got the bumper sticker on the car. Um, he was my senator when I was in college in Minnesota, died uh, 21 years ago, I think, um, in a plane crash. And many of the things that he said and talked about related to politics and government um, resonated with me at that time. And I carry them forward. And I just looked up one of my favorite quotes, which which is this, our politics are, are our deepest form of expression. They mirror our past experiences and reflect our dreams and aspirations for the future. And so when I think about what the role of government means to me, it is that opportunity, that possibility to craft a future that is more aligned with what I would hope, you know, we could live up to as a country, whether it's thinking about advancing peace over war, mm-hmm. um, you know, being fed over hunger, um, thinking about being enlightened and educated over being ignorant, like kind of all the way down the line being free versus being constrained or imprisoned. I, I think about all of the ways in which our government works to, to that has the possibility and the power to improve people's lives. And I understand certainly the you know role of corruption in that. And I understand the perversion of that when we look at uh, the ways in which you know some freedoms, I can think of a pretty big one that, that have been restricted, right, for, for individuals. Um, but when we have that kind of notion, I think, that it works for good and we put people in place that aren't hungry for power but are, are hungry for progress, I think that we can see really meaningful impacts in some of the big issues we face from poverty to housing to climate and mm-hmm. beyond. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say to listeners, uh, this is why I chose to study economics. Economics is full of discussions about market economies, when they fail, when government can improve market outcomes, and you just, it's a whole body of thought. And um, one of my favorite quotes is the Milton Friedman quote where he said one of the biggest uh, mistakes is to judge policies by their intentions rather than their outcomes, rather than their, rather than their results. And so economics gives you a structured way to think about public policy and the role of government. And, you know, where I've come down is that I think that markets are the best way to organize uh, economic activity. 
And I think sometimes government can improve market outcomes. Mm -hmm. So I look for places where government creates greater uh, wealth and prosperity for the residents it serves. Okay. And, and, and there's so a lot of you're variation. looking for... For that, I look for more freedom. So how mm -hmm. do markets create more freedom for yeah. people? And, and, and the, there's the famous political quote. I don't remember who said it, but your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's where the freedom gets, you know, it's fine to talk freedom, but people's freedoms impose costs on others. Mm -hmm. um, the best example of that, of course, is pollution. Yeah. You know, and so government has to come in and either regulate or tax or, you know, change the dynamics so that people don't pollute the air. And this is an interesting dynamic from my perspective because I look at pollution and say, we've now created a world in which the government gets to decide who gets to pollute and how much they get to pollute. And we've tied the hands of private individuals to fight against that pollution. Yeah, but we there's now have no to do it through. private property rights in the sky, John. Mm -hmm. Meaning the pollution that's emitted, you can't use a property rights argument to figure out how well, to. And historically, that. you had an element of that, but it has long been destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. But I, one of the things, and Shereen, I'm curious of your thought. I, I tell folks, um, I've told them this for years, that valuable tool that you create when you're in the majority can become a dangerous weapon yeah. when you're in the minority yeah. and stuff like that. And I'd love to get kind of your perspective because I think that happens on both sides. Yeah. Your side creates this valuable tool that all of a sudden my party comes in. And now you view it as a weapon that we're now using it to do something that was not what you intended and vice versa. Well, I think the classic example, well, maybe this is a little different, but gerrymandering comes to mind for me, right? We know that this is not a practice that is unique to Republicans or Democrats, that when there is that sort of supermajority power, that often it's exercised to maintain that power. I, 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 I don't know. I think that there are... There are certainly lots of examples of that. And we can think about, um, you know, the other one that comes to mind for me is... Uh, I feel like in the conversations that people are having around the right to life, what I keep thinking about, does, does my child then have a right not to be shot at school, right? Are we thinking about how that might extend to conversations about guns or other, you know, um, ways that our society is dangerous? So I think that's right, right? We have to be thinking very carefully about what kinds of arguments and laws we're creating and what may be the unintended outcomes of that. But I guess I want to get back to kind of this, I, I think what is the solve for that is having truly competitive democracies and, and fair democracies, right? Where we have the sense that people are held accountable for the votes that they take, that there is a real sense of participation uh, and, and opportunity for there not to be mm -hmm. supermajority control on either side. Mm. I want to just bring up that, you know, what I love is economic history and what it's taught us, you know. So you look at North and South Korea and you look at the differences in per capita income and it's really based on how they've structured their societies. You can do the same thing back in the day with East and West Germany, right? And it, it's it's an example of the power of markets to to do good. But you even have in modern times this idea that when we limit freedoms, we limit prosperity, and so we have to figure out where do we stop government intervention and where do we permit it? Right. Where do we permit it? Well, I keep thinking about Elizabeth Warren, right? Capitalism mm -hmm. without rules is theft. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there also is an element of that too, right? Like at what point can the markets not – at what point does the market just say, if I can get rich here, I will? Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I would contend so – Congress is creating it where they're putting thumbs on a scale for markets to allow certain favored folks to get rich. So, John, I presented the new Utah to a group of students up at Utah State University. And, you know, I'm on campuses quite a bit. And so, you know, I, I'm familiar with the dynamics. But the new Utah is all about, you know, mid-sized state and, 
multicultural state and an elite economy. And this student raised her hand and she said, you know, you're coming from a capitalist perspective. (laughs) And I just kind of looked at her and I thought, yeah, 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 (laughs) (laughs) that's our economy. Yeah. Uh, But her point is really that, and this is very true with a lot of um, students of the economy, they see how it creates haves and have nots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a real problem. So if you go back to the Great Depression and what happened in this um, world, or basically let's do an American point of view, uh, you know, people suffered for a long time because there wasn't a sufficient safety net. Mm-hmm. And now things like unemployment insurance and... Medicare. Know, yeah, a lot of these things came out of the suffering that happened when we had too distant of a government. Now it's hard to put so much money into Social yeah. Security and into Medicare, but boy, has it well, we live created... In- it preserved the dignity of a lot of Americans. Yeah. yeah. But we now live in the world where we train legislators to think whatever the majority wants, the majority gets. So might makes right, which is a problem to me because mm-hmm. I'm concerned with force. And I believe human nature is to abuse whatever power they have. So therefore, you want to check and limit that power. Yeah. Less than one minute in the program. What one change would you make to make government uh, better? Uh, Big question. Campaign finance reform. Yeah. John? Uh, Fundamentally, it comes down to uh, educating the public about the dangers of government. Oh, my, John. (laughs) I'm going to do two because I'm, you know, I got the microphone. (laughs) I'm going to do term limits. And I'm also going to say, let's educate our children better. Love it. Education's the key. All right. Great program. So fun to be with. John Dougal, uh, Shereen Gorbani, uh, Anthony Scoma produces the program. So grateful for our listeners. Happy holidays, everyone. 